Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. If you have a copy of the Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. So we've taken a couple of weeks off of our series in 1 Samuel, and so we jump back in today in chapter 4. We're calling this series, The Man Who Would Be King. The story of the book of Samuel really has to do with God leading his people into a monarchy that is appointing kings to reign over the people. Um, And he would then appoint a prophet who would speak the word of God in the ear of the king, who is then responsible to lead the people in obedience to God's word. And that transition happens in this book. It's been a godless, uh, crazy period of time. The book of Judges that just precedes this says that in those days there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. This was a every man for himself and every worldview is equally valid and I'm okay, you're okay, do what you want kind of a worldview and a way of living which is not all that dissimilar from 21st century United States of America. That's kind of the way that we live as a society. And this is not just the broad secular society we're talking about. This is the people of God. This is the nation of Israel, God's chosen and covenant people who have abandoned his word. And so God stopped speaking to them. We learned in 1 Samuel chapter 3 that in those days, the word of God was rare. The priesthood is a shambles. Uh, the, the sons of Eli, uh, guys named Hophni and Phinehas, are just absolutely reckless and wicked men who are leading Israel astray. There's no godly leadership. The word of God is rare. This is the situation for the people of God when God begins to move. And First Samuel opens in a very unexpected, small, humble way as we see God begin to provide for the needs of his people through his gracious, miraculous answer to the prayer of a barren woman named Hannah, who was just desperate for a son. And so she prayed, Lord, if you'll give me a son, I will dedicate him to your service all his life. So God answers this prayer, and little Samuel is born and entrusted to the care of Eli at the temple. So Samuel is growing up, so we get these pictures of the the failed, wicked leadership of the sons of Eli interspersed with little glimpses of Samuel growing up and learning the ways of God, learning the the priesthood. And in chapter 3, the last uh, portion that we looked at, Samuel is established as a prophet. God reveals himself to Samuel in a special way and sets him apart as a messenger for God, and all Israel recognizes him as such. And in fact, chapter 4 begins with these words. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So Samuel is established as God's messenger to his people. And so we're beginning to see the scales shift. All right? The, the wicked priesthood is declining. God has even pronounced and promised judgment to come on the house of Eli. And Samuel is growing and has been established as a prophet. Now, interestingly, just as Samuel is established, and it seems that the stage is set for some more Samuel stories, Samuel disappears from the narrative until chapter 7. 
So the next few chapters have uh, nothing to do with Samuel, at least not directly. But at any rate, chapter 4 is one story in two clear divisions. In verses 1 to 11, God's judgment comes to Israel. God's judgment comes. And then in verses 12 to 22, God's glory departs. These are heavy verses, but let's look together beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. Actually, after that first sentence where it says the word of Samuel came to Israel, we'll begin right there. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. We'll pause there for now. So... Israel is going out to do battle with the Philistines. The Philistines have been the the chief enemy of Israel during this period of time. If you read through Judges, you'll see over and over. Of course, the big famous story with Samson killing all these guys with a donkey jawbone and then knocking down this Colosseum and killing all these guys. All those guys were Philistines, right? So the Philistines are the, the, the enemies of God's people in this time. They mostly inhabit the kind of east, uh, the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea here in Palestine. And so they're the biggest threat to Israel. They're, of course, what they want to do is just take over. They just want more land and more power and more territory. And so they're a constant threat to Israel. So now the Philistines have come out uh, and t- lined up against Israel. And so Israel is going out into battle. We don't have a lot of battle Uh, uh, details of the the particular circumstances surrounding this battle, but I don't think it's all that important to the narrative here. The point is, Philistines have come against Israel, and so Israel's going out to fight against the Philistines, and they, it doesn't go so well. So day one of the battle, they lose 4,000 people. So they're now back at the camp and going, what went wrong? So the elders of Israel gather together, and they ask, look at this question, why did the Lord defeat us today? Which I think is very interesting. They attribute the, the loss in that battle to God. They don't say, what did we do wrong? Why did we lose? They say, why did the Lord defeat us today? Which I think is right. I think there's some wisdom in recognizing that somehow they went into battle without the strength and blessing and provision of God. Dale Ralph Davis says, the elders asked the right question, but they answered too quickly. They should have allowed the question to hang and bother them for a while. You know, perhaps if they had done that, they might remember, well, God has actually promised judgment. So maybe this, the, we're losing this battle because his judgment is coming. Maybe they would reflect on their abandonment of his word. And his ways. Maybe they'd say, well, maybe the reason that the Lord defeated us in battle is because we haven't been honoring him. We haven't lived in his covenant. 
Maybe they'd be led by God's grace to recognize their rebellion and come to him in repentance. Maybe if they'd let that question hang a little longer. But they don't. Instead, they employ a little good old-fashioned prosperity theology. You've probably heard of prosperity theology. This is the notion, basically, that if you just have enough faith in God or treat God in the right way, he'll come through in the ways you want him to, right? And so that's what they do in verse 3 and 4. They send for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, remember, the Ark of the Covenant is a symbolic representation of the presence of God with his people. When they were traveling in the wilderness, they carried it with them, and that's how they remembered God is with us because we have the ark in our midst. When they had settled, the ark resides in the tabernacle in Shiloh, which is the place of God's worship. So symbolically, the ark represents the presence of God with his people. And so they go, well, maybe we need to bring our big religious symbol, right, that, that tells us that God is with us and carry that into the battle and then all of a sudden things are going to go our way, right? It's kind of good luck charm theology. We've got the Ark of the Covenant in the camp and so surely God will come through for us. And they get very excited when the Ark of the Covenant comes into the camp. It says a, such a great shout went up uh, from the people of Israel that it was heard throughout the land, right? So they're very excited. They're very encouraged. All right, God is with us now. They get very excited. You know, maybe they've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they know that all you got to do is open the lid, and all the faces of Philistines will melt off. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's what they're thinking here. So they, they bring out the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, and they think, now God is going to fight for us. Now, why is this their strategy? Why are they so encouraged by the presence of the ark in their camp? I think it's worth stopping and asking this question. What is it about the presence of the ark that seemed to them like sure victory? I suggest it was not because they had true faith in God. I think that by this time in the life of Israel, God has become a good luck charm to them. Their relationship with God is little more than a superstition. That they call out to God in their moments of need, he would mysteriously, even miraculously, deliver them. And so they summon Hophni and Phinehas, the priests in Shiloh, to bring the Ark of the Covenant, believing that if the Ark shows up, voila, all of our troubles will be over, right? So they have this very superstitious, good luck charm version of how to relate to God. I hope you can see the folly of this approach. I hope that you can see that this view of God and this approach to God is utter foolishness. Let me give you three reasons that it's foolish. Number one, it's unapologetically self-centered. It is all surrounding, revolving around themselves and their own version and vision of what should happen. They've already made their plans, set their goals, made their aims, right? They know what they want, and now they're just inviting God to get behind them, right? We're going into battle. Now we need God to get behind us. They don't check with God about going to battle. There's no indication that when the Philistines lined up, they went to God and said, what do we do? No, they went right out into battle and started fighting and then got their tails kicked and kind of went, okay, maybe we need to regroup. Ah, I know what we need. We need to invite God to get behind our efforts. They just invoke him to support their goals. It's, it's self-centered. Secondly, it attempts to strong-arm God into action almost blackmailing him, 
right? So if you don't act, God, your reputation is going to be affected, right? Your honor will suffer because now everybody knows. It's very public. All the Philistines became aware. They know that uh, if, if God doesn't act now, then it looks like God failed. So they're kind of almost blackmailing God into doing what they want him to do. So it's a a, a presumptuous attempt to strong-arm God into action by saying, at least purporting, that his honor is on the line. And finally, it sets them up for a crisis of faith. So since they've approached God with self-centered motives and presumptuous tactics, we know full well he's probably not going to do what they want him to do. He's not going to meet their demands. And when he doesn't do what they've insisted that he do, they're going to be disappointed. They're going to be inclined to believe that God has failed them. Perhaps he wasn't able to save after all. And so they set themselves up for disappointment and and this crisis of faith. Who is God? I thought that God was faithful. I thought that God loved me. I thought that God was good. How come when we invoked his name in battle, he didn't come through? So I hope you can clearly see that there's the superstitious good luck charm approach to God is foolishness. But I hope you can also see how you and I are not exactly immune to the same kinds of pitfalls in our approach to God. At times, perhaps we can be guilty of a prosperity theology that says essentially, if I carry God around the right way, he'll help me get what I want. I think sometimes we fall into that trap. Now, it might be a little more subtle in your life. You're probably not like marching out into battle and then publicly praying that God would come and fight your enemies for you. So that's obviously foolish. So it might be a more subtle in your life. Maybe it's something like if I go to church and pray every now and then and try to read my Bible, then things in my life will go better. Maybe I can avoid suffering altogether, right? If I'm a good Christian, then maybe God will just give me good things and life will be happy and easy. That's not promised us anywhere. In fact, Jesus says quite the opposite. The world hated me. It's going to hate you too. For married folks, maybe it's, you know, if I follow this list of steps, you know, read a book, say a prayer, visit with a pastor or a counselor or something, then God will reward me with a better relationship with my spouse. If I just take these steps, my marriage will just get fixed like that. If you're single, I wonder how many times you've heard something like this. If you'll just, you know, let go of, you know, give up searching for someone and pursue your relationship with God, that's when he'll bring the right guy into your life. Have you ever heard something like that? What, what is that if not just prosperity theology, right? What I want is a husband. Pursuing God could be a means to getting a husband, and so I'll follow him because maybe it'll get me what I want. Like, that's a very common approach. Boys and girls in school, maybe you've thought like, oh, I've got a test coming up today. I'm not really very prepared for it. So maybe if I pray and ask God to help me, he'll give me like supernatural knowledge and I'll be able to get a good grade on this test even though I was totally unprepared for it. I might have prayed that prayer a time or two myself in my days in school. Maybe it's about your career or professional advancement, right? If I name drop God in this interview, maybe God will bless me with the promotion that I'm hoping for. Friends, God is not a bargaining chip 
or a genie in a bottle, and he will not abide being treated as such. He's an infinite, holy, merciful, mysterious father, and he bids us come to him in faith for relationship, for joy, for worship, but we must be careful not to turn God into a means to some end that we've chosen for ourselves. To do so dishonors him and robs us of real relationship with him. That's not what knowing God is about. Well, let's see how this all turns out for Israel. So they've had this bright idea to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. And they're just sure that God is going to come through for them because they've publicly brought the symbol of his presence into the camp. Look at verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Interestingly, the Philistines seem more aware of God's presence and his acts in the past than the Israelites do even recounting God's deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. I digress. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. This is not the way they expected it to go. This is a bitter defeat. Israel doesn't just lose the battle. They go running to their home crying for mommy. They all fled to their own homes. Like when you got to get so far away from the battle that you're like in your tent under a blanket, you lost and you lost bad. They lost 30,000 soldiers. A very great slaughter, it says. This was not like a close contest. This was not like they almost were victorious, but the Philistines at the last minute managed to overpower them. No, this is utter and bitter defeat. The Ark, not only is the battle lost, but the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the enemy. This symbol of God's presence that contains the tablets with the Ten Commandments and Aaron's priestly staff, it's now in the hands of the enemies of God. This is a disaster. And Hophni and Phinehas received the judgment promised by God in chapter 2. Remember when God had told Eli that he was going to remove the, the mantle of the priesthood from his family and judge him, and he said, this will be a sign that these things will come to place? Your two sons will die on the same day. Here it is. They've been judged. Israel is embarrassed here, to be sure. But make no mistake, God's honor, at least in the eyes of the people of Israel and probably the Philistines, has been belittled. 
The name of God has been disgraced here. In the eyes of the people of Israel, it seems that God has failed them. To the Philistines, who believed that Yahweh had come into the Israelite camp before the last leg of the battle, it must seem that he was unable to save his people. They have not just conquered Israel, they've overpowered Israel's God. That's how the Philistines would take this. Wow, that God we were so afraid of, wasn't that big a deal after all? We totally took him. Dale Ralph Davis says that this text forces two important implications upon us. Yahweh will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. And Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. Some of us have this idea of who God is and how he should behave and what I can expect or demand from him that it does not only a disservice to us, but a dishonor to God to continue carrying that and living in that way. And God is willing to let us be disappointed, right? I trusted God to come through and he didn't. I prayed for healing and it didn't happen. I prayed for my loved one and they didn't make it. I prayed for the job and I didn't get it. He's willing for us to be disappointed if it gives us an opportunity to come to the awareness That's not how God operates at all. God is not a genie in a bottle who's waiting to give us all of our demands. God is holy and righteous, and we come to him on his terms. He welcomes us in crazy grace to come to him. And so here, perhaps, in God's mercy, the crisis of faith set up by Israel's good luck charm theology can be answered. Perhaps in the light of their disillusionment, they will come to learn who God really is and how utterly they have forsaken their covenant with him. And while that will be a lesson hard learned, it will be a great mercy of God to set their eyes on him afresh. May he be so gracious to us in our own times of darkness and disappointment. Well, what's the aftermath of all this? People of God defeated, the ark of God captured, the priests of God slain. In verses 12 through 22, let's find what happens. Look at verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. 
He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. The news of Israel's defeat and the capture of the ark comes into the town of Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle is, where Eli uh, lived and where the priests and the ark had been. And the narrative focuses on two individuals in particular, Eli and the wife of Eli's son, Phineas, who's not named. So when Eli learns what has happened, he is so shocked and dismayed that he falls out of his seat, breaks his neck, and dies. And it's one of those things that is so just like plainly and crudely said that it's sort of, it's shocking when you read it. Whoa, that is not exactly how I expected that to go. But I want you to notice, he does not seem dismayed about the death of his sons. He knew that was coming anyway. God had already told him that he was removing the priesthood and that his sons would die. And in fact, he knew that really they deserved that judgment. So I don't think he's surprised by that. No, the blow that sends him plummeting to the ground and to his death is the news of the Ark of the Covenant. It says, as soon as the Ark of God was mentioned, he fell backward and died. Remember back in verse 13, we had read that as he was waiting to see how things turned out, it said that his heart trembled for the ark of God. And so we're left with this picture of Eli, a, a generally good man who I think wanted to honor God and do right, but who was just incapable of restraining the wickedness of his sons and in fact is probably complicit in it in some way. And so when he learns that the ark of God has been captured by the Philistines, he can't handle it and he dies. But consider how God is at work in all these things. He has fulfilled his prophecy of judgment upon Eli's house. Right? God has toppled the wicked priesthood of Eli's sons and ended the reign of Eli as judge over Israel. Just like that, it's gone. And so the moment has finally arrived for Samuel to rise to leadership, who all the while has been growing and learning the ways of God and whose ministry as God's prophet has been established throughout Israel. So he's fulfilled his prophecy, and he's set the stage for a season of revival to come. Indeed, he's about to go on a seven-month-long mission to restore his honor among the Philistines and to bring the people of Israel to repentance, and that's what the next few chapters are all about. Christian, don't assume that failures and hard things in your life mean that God has abandoned you. Even in the hard things, he is at work for his glory and your good. Trust him, watch him, worship him. And then the chapter ends with an odd episode focused on Phineas' wife, who is pregnant and suffers a similar fate as Eli upon hearing the news of the Ark of the Covenant. Noteworthy again is that her husband's death is not the decisive factor 
in her sorrowful death. A testimony, if ever, to the worthlessness of Phineas, not just as a priest, but also as a son and a husband. Nobody particularly mourns this guy's loss. It says, when she heard the news, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And then it says, and about the time of her death, her servants came to her and said, you've had a son. So she goes into labor out of shock and grief and dies in childbirth as she delivers this son or shortly after she's delivered this son. And she names the son Ichabod, which means, sorry kid, no glory. Or where is the glory? It could be translated in either of those ways. And we know, we know why she named him that. And we know which glory she has in mind because she tells us twice, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. To be clear, God has not forsaken his people. At this point in redemptive history, he still has many promises yet to keep, and keep them he will. And we know that God's presence is not able to be contained in a box, however religiously significant that box is. So that the ark has been captured cannot literally mean that God is now gone away. So something else is in view. It's not precisely correct to say that God has departed from Israel. What has been removed from the people is his favor. His blessing. To use the language of Paul in Romans 1, he has handed them over to their rebellion and unbelief. And at least two people in Israel, Eli and Phineas' wife, have the spiritual awareness to recognize in the ark's capture this disturbing reality. In our sin and rebellion, we have forfeited God's blessing and grace. This is a heavy message for the people of Israel to be sure that the ark of God has been captured is is symbolic of the fact that God in judgment has removed his hand of protection and blessing and grace on their lives. But don't miss the fact that God's righteous judgment is mingled with mercy. Even in dispensing his holy justice, he is stubbornly holding fast to his promises to do good to the people of Israel and to lead them as their God. In fact, in God's economy, his judgment is very often mingled with mercy. There is no greater display of either God's righteous judgment or of his redeeming love than in the cross of Calvary. When Jesus hung on the cross, the righteousness of God was vindicated. The blazing fire of his holiness is manifested in his wrath poured out on his son. And the boundless reach of his love is revealed because the son suffers in our place. The wrath poured out would have rightly landed on us had he not in mercy put forward his own son to be the propitiation for our sins, as Paul says. Christian, the cross of Jesus Christ means that you need not fear any judgment from God. In terms of eternal security and your standing with God, his judgment against your sin has already fallen upon Christ. You are safe under his shadow. 
And in life today, the hardships, trials, even seasons of seeming distance from God are no threat to your soul. Indeed, they are loving acts of fatherly discipline designed to release sin's grip upon our hearts and to hasten us back to him in repentance and worship. I believe he intended the judicial removal of his blessing from Israel to lead them to repentance and to deeper knowledge of and trust in him. And he intends the same for us. Remember that Davis quote from earlier, he will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sword of God he really is. When we come upon hardships in our lives, let's take the opportunity to examine our relationship to God and our beliefs about God. Maybe there are things that we have falsely, wrongly believed about God and how he ought to relate to us. Maybe we should take these opportunities when there's disappointment and struggle and failure in our lives to dig in deeper, to lean in closer to God and his word and discover his heart for us and the way that he really is so that we'll no longer continue in these false uh, good luck charm ways of relating to God.